Hello, I'm Michael Desch. I'm the director of the Notre Dame International Security Center. Welcome back to Outside the Box, a podcast series that I do with my co-conspirator, unindicted, at least so far, uh, former senator and uh, former secretary of the Navy, uh, Jim Webb. Jim, great to be with you again. Good to be with you again. I remain unindicted and, as, as always, undefeated, <laughs> at, least, at least in the ballot. <laughs> <laughs> Undefeated and unindicted. Uh, yes, uh, we couldn't hope for more. <laughs> so uh, this is quite a day uh, to uh, be wel- welcoming our guest, uh, Professor Andrew Basevich. Uh, the, uh, we're recording on the uh, Monday of the uh, fall of Kabul in Afghanistan. And uh, that is uh, certainly a momentous and portentous uh, occasion. Um, And one I think that uh, will segue, unfortunately, uh, quite well uh, with uh, Professor Basevich's latest book, uh, After the Apocalypse, America's Role in a World Transformed. Uh, I've known Andy Basevich for over a quarter of a century. I think I was aware of him. I knew of his uh, book on the Pentomic Division during the Eisenhower administration early on. Um, But uh, we first met when I was uh, the assistant director of the Olin Institute at Harvard, and Andy had retired from the Army and was running a center at uh, Johns Hopkins uh, SICE, School of Advanced International Studies in Washington. Um, But he didn't stay an academic functionary uh, for very long. He has a uh, very fluid pen um, and was writing uh, a lot of uh, high impact articles and books, which uh, took him uh, to uh, Boston University, uh, from which he retired as a professor emeritus about eight years ago, Andy. Um, But uh, he hasn't rested on his laurels in addition to writing a number of books uh, since he retired. Uh, He's also the president uh, of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft uh, in Washington, D.C., a very interesting and uh, high impact uh, think tank that uh, in a way uh, engages uh, many of the uh, issues uh, in the book today. So Andy, uh, great to have you on Outside the Box and uh, great to be able to read um, yet another uh, thoughtful and thought-provoking Andy Basevich uh, book. So Jim, how should we frame our discussion with Andy today, especially given the events uh, in Kabul and throughout Afghanistan? Well, first of all, let me just say that uh, I've uh, known uh, Andy um, somewhat at a a distance with some meetings, but also from his writings for a number of years. I was privileged to review one of his books, and I've blurbed uh, at least one other one uh, for him. So his, his writing has been important in, in the, uh, 
the national debate that uh, we have and that we have much needed given um, sort of the arterial sclerosis that has overtaken the uh, international uh, law and foreign policy area in Washington. Um, and so, uh, you know, he's, listen, this is someone for, for listeners. He's a West Point graduate, was an uh, infantry officer in the army uh, before he started his academic career and his writing career. So, you know, we need that kind of experience in, in uh, the discussions about where the country needs to go as well. So let me just say, you, you, you mentioned, Mike, this is the day or the day after the, the fall of Kabul uh, in, uh, in uh, the beginning of uh, a new period of, in terms of how we're going to deal with that, that particular region. I was in uh, Afghanistan as, a, as an embed uh, journalist, as you know, in, in 2004, and that was at a, at a tipping point where I, I believe, frankly, that th this country ended up tipping the wrong way. I think that once we got away from the maneuver uh, elements, specifically going after the terrorist entities inside the country, we grabbed a hold of something that uh, was really, I think, doomed from the beginning. At the same time, I think that uh, the way that our exit was handled by this leadership was uh, notoriously bad, uh, you know, in terms of information, intel, and how they were structuring guarantees, and then the disappearance of our president. Frankly, this is a day today, since uh, this, this is a recorded podcast where the president is going to speak uh, after we have this particular uh, uh, podcast. But uh, we need to hear from the national leadership about how this unwound the way that it did and to get you know, some accountability on the one hand and then a way to look into the future in, in, in that region. So I think uh, I'd just like to start by, uh, again, welcoming uh, Andy Basevich and asking for his thoughts on that. And first of all, thanks to you both uh, for uh, including me in this conversation. Uh, I have to admit that uh, as someone who has, I, I have no investment uh, in the Afghanistan war at all. Uh, and yet uh, this uh, outcome, uh, I, I can't think about anything else. I'm absolutely tormented by the scope of the tragedy, the disaster, uh, the incompetence. Uh, it's, a, it's a bad day. It's a bad time and for our country. Obviously, it's a tough time for, for Afghans. That said, and maybe here's where I'm going to disagree with Jim a little bit, although it is certainly the case in my judgment that the Biden administration has mismanaged the, the final drawdown of U.S. forces and uh, the president needs to be held accountable for that aspect of this debacle. I would still insist that uh, he ain't the only one that ought to be uh, held to account. Uh, and if the conversation, I don't mean our conversation, I mean the national conversation, simply focuses on what's happened over the past couple of weeks, uh, then I fear that we won't uh, learn the right lessons uh, from our failure. I had occasion the other day to take a look at the uh, statement that was issued at the conclusion of the so-called bond conference uh, that was uh, 
convened in December 2001, I believe, basically af immediately after uh, the Taliban regime had been overthrown. Uh, get together uh, in, in, in Bonn, Germany, led by the United States, including American allies, sort of laying out the template for what was going to happen next. And this is a quote now from, from their communique uh, that, that, that the objectives going forward included, quote, national reconciliation, lasting peace, peace and stability, and respect for human rights. Uh, that's what we said we were gonna do in Afghanistan. And I have to say that uh, certainly in retrospect, but I think arguably even at the time, the objectives were absurd were unachievable. Uh, and, and Mr. Biden had nothing to do uh, with, with, with laying that out. So to my mind, who's responsible for this? Multiple administrations, leaders in both political parties, certainly the intelligence community and the United States military itself. Uh, you know, a phrase we hear kicked about these days is whole of government. This was a whole of government. Of failure in my judgment. So as much as I understand the inclination to, to want to, you know, point the finger at Biden, uh, I hope that not, not simply our conversation, but I, I hope that the, that the country's discussion of this uh, would, would open a wider aperture uh, in, in, in terms of understanding how we, how, we, how we ended up where we ended up. Well, let me uh, just, Mike, since, since I've sure. sort of taken on a little bit here, I, I, I want to say uh, you won't get any argument from me, uh, Andrew, when you're, when you're talking about uh, the need for uh, full accountability. And that is essentially what I was saying. And there, there are like two different components to this. One is the understanding in the country in terms of what we first went in. You know, we had maneuver elements going in there, even before when I was there, the, the strength of what was going on, on the one hand were the maneuver elements out. I was out with them with the first battalion, six Marines. But then behind that, all of this nation building, which had to have a, a stop. Uh, and then the second part of it, which is the, uh, the last several weeks, is if you're going to do a retrograde, you really have to think about it. You have to reassure uh, the people who are, are on our side and on the other side that uh, this isn't, you, you're not running away when you're walking away from something that needed to be uh, resolved. And uh, sorry for taking your time, Mike, but I just wanted to clarify. No, I uh, reserve my time and uh, we'll take it back later. <laughs> but <clears throat> what, I, what I was going to suggest, Andy, that um, uh, certainly after the apocalypse, but I think also your previous book, The Age of Illusions, easily could have a chapter on Afghanistan that would um, develop uh, many of the themes that you were uh, emphasizing in your re remarks just now. Uh, the, the root of the problem, uh, in your view, and I think in my view, uh, is much deeper. Um, and, and I think it's not just whole of government, but it's whole of society, isn't it? Isn't that the uh, the 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 Basevich, uh view uh, recently in these books? I, I guess a theme that I have uh, that has become a preoccupation of mine 
Uh, and uh, so I probably keep repeating myself in, in whatever I write. It has to do with the way we, our nation, uh, responded to the end of the Cold War. Uh, and it was not simply the end of the Cold War. It, it was it, the fall of the Berlin Wall, like 11 months after the fall of the Berlin Wall, we've got Saddam Hussein invading uh, Kuwait, leading shortly thereafter to Operation Desert Storm. I think those two events together, fall of the Berlin Wall, Desert Storm, uh, created a a set of expectations uh, that have proven to be uh, deeply problematic. Uh, and the, the expectations had an ideological or political compo component, and they had a military or security component. On the ideological side, the expectation was that uh, we had reached the end of history, to use Francis Fukuyama's famous phrase that that uh, democracy, uh, our version of liberal democracy was, intent, was uh, uh, gonna prevail everywhere. We just needed to nudge things along. Uh, the military, the security expectation was that we had now figured out how to, we'd mastered war. And, and therefore the, 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 the instrument of force, at the time we're in the 1990s and then after 2000, was far more useful uh, in, in hurrying history up to its intended destination. I mean, Jim, Jim may have different recollections, but we both basically uh, grew up at the same time during the Cold War, notwithstanding the wars in Korea and Vietnam. It's at least my recollection that the American people, American political leaders viewed force as something that ought to be husbanded, kept in reserve. The idea was to contain the enemy. The idea was to avoid war. Now, we, we strayed from that path in, in, in many different ways. But nonetheless, there, there, was, a, there, there was a reluctance uh, to, to use force that was a a continuing theme. When we get past the Cold War, I think that reluctance goes away. And we enter into a period of military activism. Uh, the, the first Gulf War is an example, but even before the first Gulf War, we had Panama, then we've got Somalia, we've got Haiti, we've got Bosnia, we've got Kosovo, then 9-11 happens. And of course, then we go, on, go we embark upon this global war, uh, always with an expectation I think the expectation probably was, you know, a, a stronger in Washington, D.C. than it was in Indiana, but nonetheless, an expectation that uh, American military power can fix things. Uh, and the record has been at best mixed uh, in that regard. And I think that in this uh, episode, this longest war in our history, not the biggest war, but in terms of duration, the longest war, uh, is a repudiation of that, of that expectation. Uh, whether or not the American people and or our you know, leaders in Washington uh, will correctly read the lessons of Afghanistan, 
I guess correctly means read the lessons the way I think they should be read. Uh, but whether they will correctly read the lessons of Afghanistan, I think very much remains to be seen. And frankly, I'm skeptical about it. And the reason I'm skeptical is because I think the analysis is going to focus on the failures of Joe Biden. They are real, uh, but I don't think that they are. Uh, I don't think I'm going to offer a full explanation. Yeah, I know. Well, I, I, I think maybe in the next couple of weeks, people are going to right, rightly examine how this attempted retrograde fell apart. And I think that's fair. And I mm -hmm. think this administration, I think the military uh, leaders uh, need to answer for mm -hmm. how this was, um, how this fell apart. Uh, but you said a couple of things, um, Andrew, that I, I, you know, kind of spurred um, uh, some things I've I've been saying myself over many years, you know, I grew up in the military. My dad was a pilot in World War II, flew in a Berlin airlift, became a pioneer in the missile program. And that group of military leaders in the, in the Cold War military leaders um, were, were the finest leaders uh, in the military that I've been around in, in all of my life. And, and uh, uh, you know, when, I remember when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened and, that my, you know, they, they were ready to go. But there's a difference between communicating to your adversaries and your friends that you're ready to go and then going without really, you know, not ready, you know, ready, fire, aim, which is sort of what we've been doing. <laughs> but, you know, when you when you mentioned the end of the Cold War, let me take you back to uh, 1987 when I was secretary of the Navy, because I, I've written actually I think I may even have written a note to you on your, your second to last book about this. Uh, I, I believe this uh, this whole process in the Middle East began uh, in the Iran-Iraq War, uh, right after, if you'll recall, um, with the Iran-Contra issue, uh, people were, were sort of stunned in the region that we had sent weapons to Iran during the middle of this Iran-Iraq War. Uh, and... Um, Right after that, it's when I was waiting for my confirmation hearing, uh, we decided that we would uh, flag Kuwaiti oil tankers as American vessels as they went through uh, the, the Straits of Hormuz. Uh, Kuwait at that time was the number one ally of Iraq, ironically, uh, in the Iran-Iraq war. And I think there was a signal in there that I never physically heard, but there was a signal in there that to the region, no, we haven't tilted toward Iran. You know, we're now we're uh, doing some things for the allies of Iraq. Uh, all of a sudden, I mean, there were so many people, and it wasn't even uh, Mike, as you were saying, national will. There was very, very focused intellects that uh, uh, that wanted to get us involved in in the Middle East. Some up for oil, some up for other reasons, and everybody wanted to play. Once, once the uh, the the reflagging of these vessels and the military. Uh, side of it came you know, to be talked about and analyzed, and I think one one of them hit a hit a mine out there, an Iranian mine. So then everybody wanted to get in there and play. And then the USS Stark, I'm Secretary of the Navy, USS Stark is taken out by an Iraq aircraft and said it thought it was something else. Thirty seven sailors are killed. With what went on there, uh, sowed the seeds, ironically, for. Uh, what happened when uh, Saddam Hussein uh, went into Kuwait. When that happened, uh, I got a call from a, a, a great friend of mine from the, who had been in the administration, was at an oil conference in Marseille. And he said, what do you think about this? I said, well, Saddam Hussein is a jerk. And he goes, calm down. He said, take a look. This is the third time 
uh, in, in recent years that, that this has happened where Iraq always thought that Kuwait was a province of Iraq and they'll go in there and somebody's gonna pay them off. He said that the Arab countries uh, believe that uh, uh, they owe, or, or Saddam Hussein believes that the Arab countries owe him uh, billions of dollars for having fought Iraq. Um, and then all of a sudden, boom, here we are, pouring all of our troops in there um, to, to, you know, to tell uh, uh, the Iraqis to get out of Kuwait. And from there, it went on and on and on further and further into um, Iraq, Afghanistan. And I was, at the time, I, I was uh, very strongly opposed to the way that we were militarizing uh, these events in the Persian. What, from, from, from what you saw, uh, heard at the time, where did the impetus uh, for further militarizing U.S. policy in the region come from? Who, who, who was in, in my view, in my, in, you know, a lot of this happens even above my level when I was Secretary of the Navy. Um, what I, what I was trying to do is to slow it down. I wrote memoranda to classified memoranda to. Secretary Weinberger, who for whom I have great respect, and I and I he's always been, I think, underestimated as a secretary of defense. Uh, but basically saying we we shouldn't tilt either way. You just you can't in that in the Iran-Iraq situation, you can't tilt either way. You need to be very careful about what we're doing. And these were uh, there were issues that I had to sign off on or was asked to sign off on in, in terms of certain things. You know, you don't get involved operational side when you're when you're Navy secretary. But uh, I, I. Uh, so in other words, the well, it was I mean, above above Weinberger's well, pay grade. Well, probably. But the other side of it is, I think there were there were uh, legitimate strategic interests in saying that uh, the you know they're talking about the the Arab Crescent uh, as opposed to Iran, and that our, we had interests in in solidifying that because of the the dangers of Iran back then. But the point basically being. I'm agreeing with everything you said, I, or almost everything you said, except that I, I believe it started in 87 rather than at the end of the Cold War. And I don't want to hog all of Mike's time. Well, and it's, uh, we're selling a lot of Andy's books because I think this <laughs> takes us back to uh, the war for the greater Middle East. But uh, um, Andy, one of, the, one of the really interesting things that you do in this book that you haven't done in uh, previous books is connect some of these issues to uh, a couple of the uh, not obviously uh, national security issues that uh, are much on uh, people's minds today. Um, and I want to talk a little bit later about uh, climate change. But the, the issue of race, you do connect in a way directly to the conversation you were having with Jim. At one point in the book, you talk, you, you point out the obvious, which is that the foreign policy establishment has been historically uh, a white male undertaking. Um, and then you, you uh, suggest in a cursory way, I'd like to hear a little bit more about it, what a non-white male uh, national security strategy uh, would look at uh, or would look like. Um, and uh, can, can you say a little bit more about that, particularly given your very interesting discussion uh, of uh, two important uh, non-white 
figures in the national security establishment, first Colin Powell and then Barack Obama. Um, would, uh, a, would a more racially diverse establishment uh, help us avoid the sort of debacles, the most recent one being uh, Afghanistan? And if so, how? Uh, no, my answer to that question is no. I mean, I, I simply, I, I, what I'm about to say is politically incorrect, uh, but you know, I, I simply don't believe that uh, changing uh, a racial mix or a gender mix uh, in some uh, entity, uh, whether it's government or the University of Notre Dame, uh, is going to thereby automatically yield uh, greater wisdom in terms of, of governance. I'm just not there. Now, uh, you're asking me to talk about the weakest chapter in the book. I know it's the weakest chapter in the book. Uh, it's the least developed chapter in the book. Uh, and frankly, I, I'll be interested to see if some of the folks who listen to this and read the book, what, what they think of that chapter. But here's what I was trying to say. The, the national security elite, has been, uh, white and male. Yeah, less so today than was the case in uh, you know, 1947, when George Kennan wrote uh, you know, Sources of Soviet Conduct. But uh, it has been a white and a male enterprise. Why does that matter? I think it matters because the, the, the members of that uh, group, uh, have tended to view international politics through a particular lens. And it's a lens that focuses on great power competition as it became framed in the latter part of the 19th century and through the 20th century. I mean, if you really wanna to cut to the chase, it is the United States and the United Kingdom against Germany, the United States and the United, and the United Kingdom against the Soviet Union in the Cold War. I know that's an oversimplification, but I think that gets to the essence of it. I don't necessarily find that objectable, uh, objectionable because yes, Nazi Germany was a threat to the United States to our well-being. Yes, so was the Soviet Union. But I think that angle of vision tended to uh, blind decision makers to other, uh, other aspects of international politics. They were looking east-west, therefore they did not look north-south. And so, for example, the disintegration of European empires, and to some degree the American empire, uh, that occurred uh, in, in the wake of World War II was treated as kind of an afterthought by American uh, policymakers. What was happening in South, in Sub-Saharan Africa didn't much matter. Well, it really did matter or arguably mattered more if for a person of color, conscious of the racial dimension, implicit, implicit, not, 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 not explicit, racial dimension in this East-West perspective of international politics. So I speculate, it's only speculation, I speculate that 
as the events of 2020, really this book is about the meaning of 2020, as the events of, of 2020 have brought to, to the fore a greater consciousness about the significance of race in American society and, and globally. I speculate that one of the consequences of that may be to, to, to shift, not, not fundamentally, but substantially, the focus from this east-west perspective focused on great power politics to a north-south perspective where the issues are really not gonna be about great power, power politics. They're, they're gonna be about things like economic inequality and injustice, uh, which we, I think as a nation, regardless of what color we are, really don't want to take on as something that we're supposed to worry about. You know, I think even, even I'm, I, I see myself as a person on the right, I hope I'm a person on the right of, of goodwill. My, my sense is that even, even the, 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 the impassioned people on the left, you know, if it were suggested to them that we should undertake a comprehensive effort to bring about economic equality around the world, they'd probably say, well, I don't think so. I'm not ready to give up my summer home, you know, in the upper peninsula of Michigan just to try to make sure that people in Africa have a fairer shape. But I don't know that this reorientation is gonna happen. I'm simply speculating that the, the greater consciousness of race as a factor in politics may well have implications for the, the US perspective when it comes to international politics. Maybe just a, a quick coda to that, not exactly on race, but on the related issue of gender. I'm on a listserv of national security experts broadly defined. And of course, to go back to Afghanistan, there's much uh, uh, discussion uh, about what went wrong and uh, who's to blame and what should be done. And there's one colleague um, who is uh, very um, engaged in a feminist perspective uh, on international politics and international security. Um, and she is one of the most vocif vociferous critics uh, of the US and the Biden administration's, uh, in her view, uh, supine response to uh, the Taliban takeover. Uh, and so the irony is, is that somebody who's deeply animated by a very different way uh, of thinking about uh, international politics uh, is also, at least in my view, pushing uh, the uh, most retrograde policies, which is that the United States ought to stay there forever in this case uh, to uh, protect the status of, or the gains of Afghan women. Um, I think you're, that's an important, in other words, the, what you're saying, I think, is that it, it is wrong to posit that the the East-West angle of vision consists of a bunch of a warmongers, whereas a North-South perspective is going to be people who are all interested in peace and harmony. On the contrary, uh, a, a North-South perspective can also animate 
a crusading instinct uh, to you know get out there and 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 fix the problem. Uh, the, the I think the, the the war in Afghanistan, at least in a small way, was in, informed by that. That, that quote I, I I read from the the Bonn conference where we thought we were going to you know is going to spread sweetness and light. Uh, no. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, as we know, Andy. <laughs> For sure. Well, let me let me um, give you one uh, additional thought on this, Andrew. Um, in terms of the way you present this issue of white white males in power and uh, you know the national policies and and these sorts of things, I'm mean, actually let me, let me make two points. First of all, it, it's very easy for people when they read uh, these sorts of uh, statements to create in their minds uh, an inverse syllogism, and I see that it, it's it, it's it is to me the great breaking point in American society today. This this uh, polarization that is taking place on the basis of race. The fact that uh, white males historically have had these roles at the top of society does not mean that if you are a white male in your entire history, family's history in this country, that you've been a part of it. Uh, white society is not a fungible monolith. It is a very stratified uh, series of, of cultures, as are Asian cultures, by the way, and, and uh, Latino and, and African-American, there are certain cultural substrata that are at the very top and there are others that are at the bottom. And when this type of discussion has taken place, the people from the cultures that have been left out, the white people from cultures that have been left out are feeling the burden and getting very angry about the insinuations that, that they they and their families have ever really had white privilege. So we got to be very careful how these things are, are stated or they're going to be used and they have been used in a way that's been very damaging to harmony in our society. Um, the, the second one is when, when people start talking, I see this a lot these days talking about how the, you know, the, the white populations of the world, you know, dominated and colonialized, et cetera. Yeah. There has been a lot of that, but it's not simply a white issue. You go to Asia, um, the Chinese expanded through assimilation and conquest. The, the, the Japanese and the Koreans gone back and forth. You don't know how many times the Chinese have been inside Vietnam. Uh, the Japanese are the worst occupiers of Vietnam, if you ask the Vietnamese people. So that you know, these are power centers, historically power centers. And on the other hand, I want, I want to strongly agree with you on this notion that we have not looked south enough in, in our area, in our continental area here in order to solve problems. I, I'm, I've said something in a, in a hearing, I think it was a, a foreign affairs hearing, foreign relations committee hearing uh, um, to uh, the secretary of state when, when I was in the Senate about, you know, if I, if I were the president, I would want to send my secretary of state down into Latin America, not over to, uh, the, the Middle East in order to solve a lot of the, the problems that we have and that, you know, the, the, the narco state below us and the, the insurgencies along the borders and all these sorts of things. We're not paying attention to them. And you can do that in a way that incentivizes not only good relations, but economic prosperity in that part of the world. Now, in the last chapter of the book, Jim, where I tried to, uh, you know, <laughs> instead of just, you know, mouthing off, 
uh, offer some kind of a, of a prescription going forward. I talk about, I suggest, I, 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 back up a second. A, a central point of my book is that the threats that matter most to us today are no longer out there. They're no longer in Central Asia. There are threats out there. There's problems out there. Certainly the rise of China is a concern. But in terms of, of what threatens our way of life here and now, your, your grandkids, my grandkids, I've come to believe that the, the, the threats are back here, here at home. You know, that it is climate change, economic uh, 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 deterioration, uh, uh, pandemic, uh, borders that we can't control, the, the dysfunction that, that within our society, those matters, those, those are the things that really demand priority attention. And therefore, this is my sort of strategic prescription as it were, I say what we need to do, we need to create a, a what I call a, a North American security zone. We need to establish special relationships we don't need a special relationship with the United Kingdom. We certainly don't need a special relationship with Israel. We need to establish special, serious special relationships with Mexico and Canada. Those are the two most important countries to us, to our security and our well-being. They have they are different countries. They have different sorts of of concerns, but we need to put our arms around them, and 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 you know and worry less about uh, the security of of Western Europe, which of Europe, I should say, which in my judgment, the Europeans can handle it uh, themselves. Uh, well, you know, even in Europe, they are reestablishing a lot of their historical relationships uh, out, you know, beyond the, the uh, post-World War II era. You see uh, Germany and, and Russia, for instance, they've long been, uh, you know, had, had uh, positive relations before the, the wars of the uh, last century but you know when you were when you were saying that I I read a Pat Buchanan article uh, night before last and I was thinking of your book <laughs> I want to read a couple of sentences America is unable to win wars she chooses to fight she cannot or will not control and defend her borders from a mass migrant invasion she cannot halt an outbreak of criminality and killing in her great city she has not run a trade surplus in four decades. Her dependency upon foreign producers is unpre unprecedented, and her budget deficits continue to break records every year. Uh, does that and does her and is that not a description of a failed or failing state? What do you think? <laughs> well, I have to say, I agree. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I, I could quibble about uh, the details, but it does make the point that whereas our national security priorities uh, since World War II and even after the Cold War have tended to focus on these faraway places. Uh, I think it's time to rethink that. Um, I, I would argue that probably the most egregious example of that was when Jimmy Carter promulgated the Carter Doctrine and designated the Persian Gulf as of a vital U.S. national security interest. You know, a few minutes ago, we were talking about, you were talking about the, uh, uh, the, the Iran-Iraq war, uh, the Stark incident as a turning point. 
my sense of the, the real turning point there was the was the promulgation of the Carter Doctrine. That once that happened, you know, the bureaucratic wheels started to turn. Let's create a rapid deployment joint task force. Let's create a central command. Let's begin doing uh, exercises in Egypt. Let let let's start to prepare war plans uh, to intervene in uh, in in in, uh, in the Persian Gulf. At first, we thought we were going to intervene to stop the Soviets, uh, which I think was an absurd scenario. But when the Soviets went away, uh, we dust off the war plans, and they're now we're now posturing against Saddam uh, Hussein. I I think that. That, in, that entire sequence of, of actions uh, was not informed by a, 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 a coherent appreciation of, of our strategic interests. So I know, I know Buchanan gets tagged as an isolationist. I don't think I'm an isolationist, uh, but I do think that there are concerns closer to whom that demand far greater attention. So I, 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 I want to see your Pat Buchanan and uh, raise you uh, Donald Trump, because I, I was thinking <laughs> when, when I read that, that that last chapter in your advocacy of a, uh, a posture uh, of sustainable self-sufficiency, there, there were a lot of places in the uh, in the book where you uh, uh delivered, um, you know, the reasonable and well-deserved critique uh, of Donald Trump, the individual. But it was often, or at least sometimes in the context uh, of saying that some elements of uh, Trumpism uh, were uh, not completely unreasonable or, you know, uh, completely uh, morally uh, deplorable. Am I reading too much into that, or is yeah, maybe a little bit? You know, when when he when he became president, I, wrote, I actually wrote an essay in Foreign Affairs that nobody paid attention to. Uh, but the, the gist of the essay was, you know, viewed from a certain angle, America first could have potential as a basis of policy. The problem with Trump, again, in my personal view, is that he was utterly incompetent. He had negligible attention span. He didn't bother to uh, appoint subordinates who actually shared his perspective. And there, and there, to my mind, there appeared to be a very little process. You know, we want to. Here's our objective. Here's the ten things that we're going to do to achieve our objective. Here's the ten people that are in charge of those ten things, and I want to hear from them every two weeks. I don't think any of that happened in the in the Trump White House. So, so yes, there were certain instincts that Trump expressed, and and I think Jim Jim touched on one of them. You know, he, instinctively, Trump seems to have understood that the penchant for ill-advised wars fought by Americans who are not people of privilege. That that was an unpopular thing, and that and that he could exploit that. Uh, at a gut level, he seems to have understood it, but I don't think that he ever ha actually had uh, a, a viable uh, approach to to strategy. It was a little of this and a little of that. You're of a, a tragedy and mindset in a lot of things that you write, <clears throat> and I wonder if you couldn't 
characterize this as yet another uh, tragedy of uh, contemporary America, that the only recent politician, you know, who's had their finger anywhere near the pulse of the world that we're really in was somebody uh, as obviously uh, flawed as uh, Donald Trump was. But, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, reading your, <laughs> your, your characterization of Hillary Rodham Clinton and, and Joe Biden, it's not like you have much confidence that either of them were the people that could really um, take the country in the direction that the times uh, really required. Um, and so who's out there? I mean, Jim Webb isn't out there. He's here on this podcast um, and uh, uh, not available, um, at least until 2024. Um, but do, do you, is there somebody out there that, you know, you, you think has got not only the realization that the world's changed and that there are new issues, but also the ability uh, to lead our country in the direction we need to go. Well, since you've since you've taken Jim off the table, I'm not sure. <laughs> but 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 but, so, but more seriously, more seriously, uh, you know, in eighteen uh, in eighteen fifty five, how many people were there to say, you know, holy cow? The country is really headed for tough times, but thank God Abraham Lincoln uh, is going to be around to to save us. Uh, so I, I guess I say this as an act of faith more than anything else, that uh, leaders, we are blessed with the fact that leaders emerge to respond to really tough times. Lincoln is, an, I think, Franklin Roosevelt, a deeply flawed human being, uh, but the right leader. Uh, to to lead our country in the depression and World War II, so we have to hope uh, that that'll emerge. But you know, your your comment was making me. I never, I didn't think about this before. But by God, there is a great play, Mike Jim. Jim's a writer. Jim could do this. There is a great play to be written about the the premier figures uh, that have walked across our national stage over the past, uh, I guess, 30 years ago now. All, all of them flawed. All of them confronted with problems that they probably only partly understood. All of them pretending to know what was going on. But when you think about the cast of characters, you know, Bill Clinton and, and, and his wife, you know, George W. Bush, uh, Barack Obama, uh, you know, John, John Kerry, I mean, the whole, the whole, I mean, they're, and, and they collaborated in bringing about catastrophe, not because they thought they sought to. I mean, I, I take it for granted that all the, they're, they're politically ambitious, they seek power, I get that. But I think probably by and large, they were people who loved our country, uh, who were people of goodwill. But my God, they made a hash of it. Uh, and there is real dramatic possibility, I think, in trying to grasp uh, how that happened. Jim, Pulitzer Prize winning play, come on. Okay, um, <laughs> well, let's see here. My, my screen just went, there, I can see you now. Um, so if, when looking at how this happens, 
and, and I, I think you, you've said it really well. There probably is a, a really great story in there. The problem with stories about politics is, you know, life imitates art, but in this case, art would have to imitate life. And, and there's been so much stuff written about them on social media and that sort of thing, but put them all together, that would be fun to watch. Uh, but when you look at the process, and also in, in how the you know the foreign policy aristocracy works. I often go back to uh, the, the, the thought that uh, groups of people do things good and bad that individuals never would, would would do. And this group consensus, when you get, for instance, on Tuesday at you know afternoon, in the, the the different political parties in the Senate go to a different place and have and have their uh, you know their lunch to talk about things and. And you get in those meetings and, you know, there's this, there's this tendency to want everyone to, to come together on something. And, and it's usually watered down in one way or he's got some sort of an agenda. And there a lot of people don't see it. You're right. I mean, the average, average person um, in, in government is basically well-intentioned and probably not uh, totally uh, in, in a, or does not totally understand a lot of the issues that they have to take stands on. And there are other issues because of the way money drives politics right now, where they just, it was good, it's going to have to, you would have to hit them with a uh, political sledgehammer before they would move. And here's one, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, because I saw this just, just uh, the other day, that um, the NSA, uh, has contracted and does contracts over and over again uh, on the small, on our most sensitive intelligence platforms with the big big social media giants, you know, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Microsoft. So you got billions and billions of dollars going into the social media luminaries, helping to finance their 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 growth. At the same time that you know, that they can literally, literally have the power to cancel a former president of the United States from even communicating with, with the American people. That, you know, if, if I were looking at that in another country uh, set in the 1930s, I would say that sounds an awful lot like fascism. Well, I mean, you talk, you t I have to say, you're talking to somebody who doesn't have a cell phone, is not on Facebook, is not on Twitter. <laughs> I think, I think all of that really is, uh, it's the work of the devil. I mean, I, and I think, actually, I think there is a, we got the, the, the cusp of beginning to appreciate uh, how uh, corrupting uh, that universe uh, of technology actually is. And to your point, uh, what, what, what motivates the executives of Facebook? It sure the heck isn't the well-being of the United States of America and the health of our democracy. I mean, they they may make gestures in that direction, but they are they are motivated to 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 expand the power of of Facebook. Uh, I think my I'm not in Washington, but my sense is that you know we, we, there's these hearings going on to uh, examine whether or not there should be some antitrust kind of effort to break up these uh, technological, you know, mega uh, entities. Uh, all I can say is I'm bothered. And the, frank, and the fact that I'm not on Facebook, I've obviously 
you know, doesn't doesn't mean a lick. So the question then, Andy, um, is how we get the people who are on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, you know, the alphabet soup uh, of things that you rightly regard as the devil's instrument, um, not to be uh, corrupted by them. And I, you know, thinking back uh, to uh, uh, your idea for uh, a great play about the uh, flawed characters uh, of so many of our leaders. So how do, how do we convince cynical young people that despite, uh, you know, the flaws of our political system, of our society and our individual leaders, that politics is still something uh, worth taking seriously um, and that, you know, rather than throwing our hands up and saying uh, it's a swamp out there where Jim lives, it is a swamp, uh, but uh, uh, that, you know, maybe they can come to town to drain the swamp. Um, I, I'm not sure most young people haven't given up on that, but, you know, what's what, what's the argument or what? how can we inspire them to think um, that that's possible and that politics, despite all these problems, is still a noble undertaking. Because I just don't see our system working without people, uh, including especially young people, ultimately believing that. Well, I think you put your finger on it. And, and I'm not a young people. Uh, so, yeah, my, my outlook tends to be pessimistic. I think that probably comes through in, in things that I, I write. Uh, but and I, I mean, I, I do instinctively agree that salvation will come from, uh, from younger people. I, I mean, and I say that in the beginning of my book. I say, I didn't write this book for, for my contemporaries. I mean, we, we're, we're about to leave the stage. And uh, I think my generation doesn't really have, have a heck of a lot of, uh, of, of standing to say, well, here's what, here's, here's what we need to do in the future. Okay, boomer. That's uh, yeah. what my kids say to me. Right. That's exactly right. <laughs> Uh, but I, uh, how, how to what? Activate uh, uh, a reform uh, instinct uh, in young people? Maybe it's happening. Maybe maybe it's happening, and, and you know we old guys just don't uh, don't appreciate it. But that's where salvation will come from, uh, from from the from the next generation or the generation after that. And they better hurry. <laughs> Because I'm not sure that we can delay much longer in trying to turn things around. Well, Jim, how are you going to hurry them along? Well, you know, I, I remember giving a speech a few years ago at a at a high school, local high school here, and uh, uh, one uh, girl who was getting ready to graduate stood up and gave a great, great response. I mean, she says, "I just I want something to believe in. You know, give me something to believe in." And I think with all of this, this massive criticism of every aspect of American society and history, whatever, has, has killed a lot of the, 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 uh, mm. the ability of, of young people to believe. And if you want to have a noble undertaking, if you want to say political process is a noble undertaking, you must be able to tell them that they're involved in, in something that has greatness to it, however flawed. Uh, and also to, to ask them to please remember that democracy is fragile. 
participatory government is fragile and it can easily become undone. And, you know, we're seeing this in, in a number of countries, particularly in Asia right now, where people who've been with us on in concepts are, are kind of looking at their leadership systems and, and you know, their, the, the, the ability to have an open and participatory society is really at risk right now. And there's a mission to that here at home. This is where I agree with, with Andrew, you know, here at home, we have to solve the issues of who we are as a people, number one. Uh, and and that's, that should be a fair debate, but a fair debate on all sides. And, uh, and then give them something to believe in and, and uh, let, them, let them go out there and try. I mean, it's kind of funny, Mike, you mentioned want to go to Washington to drain the swamp. I think some people came with a, with a motivation to do that a few years ago, and it's a pretty big swamp. I mean, I, one thing, you know, uh, Andrew, you were mentioning, you wrote an article um, about uh, uh, when, when Trump came in about, well, maybe there is some sort of possibility here. I wrote a little blurb of the Wall Street Journal. Like, it took like 200 words from different people about what would you expect. And the one thing that I said then is he, he, he in order to be successful, he would have to bring in good people in order to uh, manage the most complex bureaucracy in the world, which is the American governmental system. In, in the, you know, the average uh, corporate executives, we get them, in, you know, in the, in the Senate level too, not, not just people running for president, thinks it's going to be easy. They think they're going to come in and they're going to put the, the, the types of uh, policies together that they did when they were running a company and everything is going to go click, 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 and it doesn't. Um, and, and that's really, I think, where the Trump administration fell apart. They couldn't get good people in. They didn't, they didn't get, he, he didn't put people in and, and work through the system. You have to do that. But, you know, I don't, I don't regret any of the, the time that I spent in, in government. I did almost half of my professional time for, for many years. I'd come back in and, and work one. I like, you know, I like the idea of working with good people and motivating them and trying to get things done. And then after a while, I, I like my freedom. I love to write. I like, I like journalism, getting away from it, getting some perspective. So, you don't get caught up and, and harnessed by the very system that you want to lead. Andy, why don't we give you the penultimate uh, comment, and then we'll ask Jim for the benediction as we're uh, approaching the uh, witching hour here on Outside the Box. I don't think I have a lot to say. I mean, I, I, what I want to say is thank you uh, to you both. Uh, I've been doing a lot of these book talks, as you can imagine. Uh, mostly I just hear myself blather on. <laughs> uh, this has been fun. It's been instructive. Uh, you've both give, given me things to, uh, I got my own takeaways. Uh, and, and for that, I'm very, very grateful. So it, it's been super. I'd love to do it again. But the, 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 both of you, you got a wonderful thing going here. So keep it up. Andy, you're uh, always welcome on uh, Outside the Box. And uh, you're uh, one of the few guests that uh, can keep up with Jim in terms of a, uh, a varied uh, career and life history. Uh, I think you uh, 
underestimate uh, the boomer generation as uh, a, a worthy successor uh, of the greatest generation. Of course, I have a vested interest in that <laughs> coming in on the uh, tail end, but I'm riding on your and Jim's and a lot of other uh, distinguished uh, people's coattails. So, uh, Andy, thank you for uh, writing yet another uh, provocative and uh, thought-provoking book and uh, for joining us uh, for a really uh, terrific discussion. Um, Jim, any last words? Well, let me just echo uh, what Andrew said. You know, this, this, is a, this has been a great show. Uh, I'm happy, Andrew, that you're still out there uh, <laughs> writing and thinking and talking and, and uh, getting people to think about things as well. That this, was, this was a really great exchange of, of, of views on, on three different sides. So thank you. thanks so much. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash N-D-I-S-C forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag N-D underscore I-S-C. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.